I don't want to be a label to people. And I know other people who would say, I don't even want my label known. And that's okay too. But just saying how I work or how I work best or what I what happens to me when I get feedback from you after a long day, you know, how I accept feedback, all of those things have something to do with being neurodiverse. Hello and welcome to the Women and ADHD podcast. I'm your host, Katie Weber. When I was diagnosed with ADHD, it completely turned my world upside down. And now I interview other women who were diagnosed with ADHD in adulthood and are finally feeling like they understand who they are and how to best lean into their strengths, both professionally and personally. The following is a review from greedy underscore Claire on the Apple podcast platform in Australia. It's entitled a relief and a joy. I just want to send a big thank you for the podcast. I've just been diagnosed with ADHD at the age of 35 after years of suspecting it, and I feel relief as well as complete terror. Finding this podcast has helped to dissipate some of that fear and replaced it with a sense of hope and connection. I've been able to find an episode for pretty much every fear, question, peculiarity that has been making me feel isolated for so long. I'm so glad I found you. I'm so glad you found this podcast too. The discovery of ADHD is an emotional roller coaster for sure, and I'm so glad you don't have to go through it alone anymore. And of course, thank you for taking the time and the effort required to leave this review and help other women like you find these interviews. All right, this is episode 49 in which I interview Denise Brody. Denise is a senior contributor at Forbes, focused on the role of invisible disabilities in the workplace. Her candid deep dives into new research, ability to decode medical jargon, and her personal style of storytelling have won her the respect of CEOs, lawmakers, and people with disabilities, all of whom appreciate her writing openly about her lived experience with ADHD, dyslexia, depression, and anxiety. She's also the founder of Rebel Talent, where she brings together CEOs, HR and recruiters, employers and employees in order to facilitate discussion around topics of disability, neurodivergence and workplace accommodations. And she's the author of The Elephant in the Playroom, a collection of essays from caregivers on what it's like to raise children with special needs. Denise and I talk all about her own journey to understand her brain and her son's brain, as well as her tireless work to destigmatize ADHD and neurodivergent minds in the workplace. And we talk about the importance of understanding ourselves so that we can better advocate for ourselves and each other. I absolutely loved this conversation. There's so much information and Denise gives a lot of great hacks. So you might want to grab a pen and paper for this one. All right. Enjoy. I guess my first question is kind of when were you diagnosed with ADHD and what led up to your own diagnosis in adulthood? So I think it's probably like a lot of people. They, my son was diagnosed, then I was diagnosed. Um, and again, like a lot of people knew, mm, I probably am, my brain thinks differently than other people. And I experience things differently. I seem to be really sensitive. Um, you know, I, I, I'm funny, but I, I'm also... Um, you know, very much, um, hyper-focused. So I could see, you know, I could see all the traits in myself. And then when we took my son to be diagnosed by a neuropsych at, um, he was seven, I think that's the earliest that you can do it. 
um, I was working in New York and I, um, I had a lot of trouble editing. Like I just could not, um, when, when stressful things were happening at home and there were 400 of them, that's when my light bulb blew out. <laughs> you know, that's when I was like, oh, okay, like I'm very good at pulling it together, but there's, um, and, and I don't daily have a, you know, I didn't feel like I had a daily issue, but then as soon as stress starts ratcheting up, that's when you realize I, I can't handle this. I'm going to explode. And everyone around me realized it too. And so it was not a, you know, it wasn't a pretty picture at work. Um, I was on deadline all the time. <laughs> I was working until midnight. I was, um, you know, hoping that um, my son would sort of get on a regular schedule of, of, you know, liking his school and so forth. And, um, and I also have a daughter who's amazing and um, somehow flew through all of this. I don't know how, um, but she, um, you know, so I, ha I had my family, my husband, um, and then my work life and both honestly were really important to me. So I, I never really got that sense that, oh, I could just skip work and sort of glide through work or I could glide through my family. When everything hits you in the face, that's when you're left with, oh my gosh, I'm doing everything terribly. And I think women tend to say, oh, I'm doing everything terribly, right? But this was like, I'm doing something really, I'm doing really terribly and it's not going away. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, so I think, um, so I was, you know, my son was seven. I, I was in my forties, um, um, it was 10 years ago probably about, yeah, almost exactly 10, 12 years ago. So, um, I, I'm, I mean, it's terrible to say, but I'm grateful <laughs> that we had the resources to get him diagnosed. I'm grateful that he informed me in many ways of how to, to cope, which I'm sure he would not be happy. To <laughs> like, oh, thanks. Thanks for giving me ADHD. So you could understand your own. Um, <laughs> That, that's not what I mean. I mean, I think we, we, we really worked through, I worked through a lot of um, understanding of how my brain works with him as he, as I tried to understand him. Yeah, I actually, I've interviewed many, many women who, who came to their diagnosis after one of their children was diagnosed. I did not have that experience. I had a therapist who had ADHD who had been gently suggesting mm -hmm. I look into it over the years uh, because she saw somebody who um, had had a lot going on and I was always doing projects and I, you know, had all these things that I would get excited about and then the pendulum would swing and I would go into like crippling depression and, and you know, I've heard it described as like piece of shit syndrome of that just the sense of I like your sense that. of, right? Like your sense of self is so vastly different from how you are presented in, in this world. And, and so that was kind of how she first started thinking I had ADHD. And I, of course, was like, well, I'm not hyperactive. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm not a hyperactive little boy. I had such a misconception of what it was at the time. I was like, I think I might be bipolar, which I've found out now since talking to so many women that that's actually not uncommon at all, Feel, you know, feeling like that pendulum swing. Um, but when you were talking about like that 
sense of overwhelm. It reminded me of when I had my first baby mm-hmm. and I was working in a newsroom. You know, I was working in a newspaper. I loved newspaper journalism for like, you know, almost 20 years I had been doing this. Just like it was the best job. You know, it was just like I loved being on deadline. I loved writing. I loved everything about it. And then all of a sudden I had a baby and like I had to. I went back to work at 12 weeks. So I was lucky enough, you know, in this country, quote unquote, lucky enough to get the, you know, to be able to afford to have an additional six weeks of unpaid disability leave and going back to my job and being told like, okay, if you want to pump, you can use the editor in chief's office because he was the only person who had a closable door. So I was like, or you could use the wheelchair bathroom because that was the only bathroom that had was a single stall bathroom where everybody went to take a dump basically. And I remember feeling like these are my options. Like really like this is, this is what is happening here. Like I have to either ask the editor in chief to leave his office if I want to ever pump Uh or I can go into this bathroom. And I remember just feeling like, does, do all women deal with this? Like, is this, you know, it was just one of those visceral moments of like, is this just how it is? Like, this is how all women are treated and I need to just suck it up, you know, and, and feeling like what what you said just reminded me of that sense of like, how much am I struggling? Like, this seems absurd. And yet this is, these are the options that are given to me. But also the the conflict for me at that time, and it seems like it is now for a lot of people in the pandemic, um, is I was always experiencing, you know, being pulled in different directions and trying to manage all kinds of things and being um, my, my husband at the time, uh, work downstairs. So he was, thank God, you know, able to pick up the slack if my babysitter said, well, I'm leaving or, you know, he was there, he went to the dentist, he did all these things. So even then, you know, I did have even that support. Right. And, um, so she had shorter hours and, you know, it, it was a really optimal situation if you, you know, and yet I was still struggling. Yeah. I think there's a lot of women post pandemic who are thinking, okay, so I handled all that, you know, you don't know what's normal anymore. What is, what is a normal level of stress and what are you supposed to be taking on? Am I supposed to be, you know, teaching violin while I watch this, you know, this event for my company? Like, I don't think so, you know, and, and that's, I I, I continue to say, thank goodness, my kids are grown. They're 22 and 24. Um, And although there's um, a certain, you know, the, the pandemic has affected young adults as well. Um, it's, it's not like I had a house full of kids. I don't know what, I honestly don't know how these women did it. And if you, and if you are doing it, you may feel like you have a lot of ADHD like symptoms, you know, like you're, um, like that idea that one of the things that used to really get me was, I could be on, 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 on. But when I was off, like I just dropped, you know, it, w- it was complete and utter exhaustion. And I would bet that people feel the same way these days. Like, oh, finally my husband's home. And, you know, I'm done with my four shifts nursing, whatever the heck it is, right? And you just drop, you're so tired. Mm. And your mind won't shut down, but it's, it's a serious sense of what you said, overwhelm. Where, and, and it's very difficult to draw the line um, and understand am I living a, a life that's causing these issues? And I think a lot of people um, just write it off, <laughs> you know? Well, I think as women also, especially with young kids, 
I mean, we're told it's going to get better. It's going to get, you know, once you start sleeping again, it gets better. Once you start doing, you know, once your kids start talking, it gets better. Like there's all these sort of milestones that we wait for putting off our sense of, of success or comfort in the now, um, because we think it's going to get better. And then, you know, like I used to joke about the fact that I, I was still on antidepressants for postpartum medication and my son was eight. And, you know, I was like, I'm not ready to go off them, but it's clearly no, I can't call it postpartum depression anymore. Uh, (laughs) um, And so there's a sense that it's like one, one, one mile, one like chapter of difficulty then, melds into the next chapter of life. So what's been fascinating for me, because I am a pandemic diagnosis. I mean, I was absolutely one of those moms who had a house of cards. Everything was kind of holding it together. And then all of a sudden I was the teacher, the housekeeper, my kids were home. My, my, my husband was home. The house was just like always, there was never any food in the house. Like it was just like, it was such so many things that piled up that, yeah, I just like it had an emotional implosion. How old are you? And my kids are, my daughter's 14 and my son is almost 10. And so they're old enough. Like if I, if I talk to a woman who has a child, who's like under the age of six, I just want to give her a hug. You know, I feel like my kids are at a really, uh, they're at a great age. I always joke how I'm like, they're self-sufficient, but they're not like self-destructive yet. (laughs) They're still like in that, they're in that perfect window where it's like, I don't have to like lie awake at night worrying about the choices that they're making in life, but they're also old enough that like they can make their own lunch if they need to. So I felt like I've had a lot of freedom. But my problem when with the pandemic was like, I have, you know, I'm an entrepreneur, I have a coaching business, and I couldn't do anything because I felt like I was in waiting mode, because my kids were on zoom. And at some point during the day, there was going to be a crisis, the internet was going to blip, or there was something was going to happen, somebody was going to need a printer, like, you know, the fact that I just had to be on all the time was so exhausting that I couldn't, I couldn't focus on myself at all. And I remember listening to a This American Life episode about animals and how like animals were were sort of have been traumatized by the pandemic by having their people home all the time and how like they're <laughs> like especially dogs, right? Like dogs are on all the time when you're home and how exhausting it's it was for them in the beginning. I'm sure I feel like they probably adjusted at this point, but like it, they need time away from you so that they can relax and not feel like they're on all the time. And I was like, yes, that's what I feel like. I feel like the dogs where I'm like, yeah, I just, I wasn't doing anything and yet still felt overwhelmed. And now in respect, I'm like, oh, of course, like I could, I was paralyzed. Right. But I also think we, like we, like dogs, <laughs> have an automatic shutdown button when it's like, okay, the noise is too loud. This is too loud. I, I go into a zone. Like people are like, what are you staring at? And I'll be in a restaurant. I'm like, I'm not staring at anything. I'm just like, I just, I just turn the off button. Like I don't, mm. I, it's, I'm not functioning right now. I'm not, not functioning. I'm just, I, I just turned off everything in my brain because you know, and it's like, you can see a dog just goes to sleep in the middle of like some sort of, you know, soccer match or whatever it is, you know, and you're like, how do they do that? And it's like, I, I do that, you know, like I've had enough. Thanks. My brain just, I, I think the reason I started Rebel Talent, which is, um, you know, also entrepreneurial and is very difficult to say like, what stage am I at now? And so forth. Um, I write a lot. I write for Forbes. I write marketing copy for pretty much anyone who will ask me um, to do it because it's just easy. It's a no brainer for me. Um, And that's how I make a lot of um, my living. But, um, but I also started Rebel because 
I felt uh, two years ago, I started it because I felt like people with ADHD and other neurodiverse, you know, diagnoses never really interacted with the people who were hiring them or who were managing them. And it's this, this, this huge gap. Like what, how are we supposed to understand each other? And how are we supposed to find mentors if everybody's very quiet about the fact that, you know, I'm success, but I don't tell anyone. Um, and there's a statistic, I don't, I can't remember what it is, but it's not specifically about neurodiversity, but it's about disability in general that came out of EY. Um, and, it, and it was a couple of years ago and it said 2% of people in leadership positions in, um, tell their uh, fellow colleagues that they have a disability, 2%. Okay, so think of that probably 50% of the world right now has some sort of issue, uh, either a, a chronic pain, migraine headaches, uh, you know, back pain, dyslexia, you know, depression, whatever it is, right? And so, but but nobody's talking about it. Well, if you want to be, if you want to be talented and move ahead and you want to be yourself in the office, then you have to be a bit of a rebel in a good way to say, I'm going to have to let some of this out of the bag. I'm not saying everyone should disclose their um, disability. I do not think that's the right thing to do for some people. Um, but if the timing is right and the boss situation is right and, you know, I, or even if it's not, I think there's a way to reveal, um, I'm not gonna, I, I'm rebelling against this tradition that we all work on Friday nights until 10. I'm, I can't do that, you know? Um, and I, I think of it sort of like, um, you know, religion. <laughs> like, this is what I do. I practice this rebel talent religion <laughs> in which, you know, my inner being says, I'm sorry, this is the line where I rebel, where I can't actually do this. I can't learn three new billing systems. I can't, you know, whatever it is, right? Um, I can't be in an office or, you know, with, with people who are doing construction all around me because they're changing the office for the pandemic. I can't, I just can't do it without headphones. Um, you, you know, it's that, it's that kind of um, thing that really never gets to the boss. It never gets to leadership. It never gets to HR. So when, when you think about the hiring of neurodiverse people, um, and then you think about your life as a neurodiverse person, it's apples and oranges. Nobody ever asks you, well, how would you feel? Or, and you don't tell them, right? So there's, um, for me, this is a watershed moment. This is a tipping point where um, people are actually talking about mental health. I don't know that they feel comfortable about it. I think there's a bajillion studies showing we're all stressed, but not a bajillion studies showing what we're supposed to do about it. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> so um, I think it takes a rebel to say, look, I don't want to lose out. I know I'm talented. I know I'm good at what I do, but the situation you're putting me in or I'm putting myself in is, is basically sucking up half my energy. Yeah. I mean, you, you know, you had mentioned about feeling grateful for the diagnosis and helping your child. And I've often felt weird about using the term grateful for the pandemic, uh, but in terms of the, you know, like I, I feel like a Phoenix a lot of the time 
um, I like that analogy because it really did take the pandemic and it did take like a mental health implosion for me to get this diagnosis, which has been so life-changing and has made me kind of reframe everything and sort of realize how incredible ADHD is not only, not only in, in as a neurodivergence, but just sort of like how I, I credit it for so many of those sort of successes I had in my life. And I just wasn't willing to see that because I was always trying to hide those parts of me. And so it's interesting, like when you talk about, like I've interviewed so many, I don't think I've ever interviewed a woman where I went, where after the interview, I was like, she wasn't very smart. I mean, they're everybody is just so interesting and so fascinating and so good at what they do. And yet we, there always is that underlying sense of like the stigma involved that you're going to get found out and you're going to get outed. And like, we are such overwhelming evidence to the contrary. <laughs> and yet it's it, like you said, it's like one person, it's very difficult for one person to advocate for themselves, especially like if your job is on the line. Right. And, and these times it is. Yeah. It really is. Um, well, I mean, the, the other thing that I, I was going to say is I think you, you have to turn the tables and say, I deserve this. Like I deserve to be able to do what I do and do it well. And it comes along with the women equal women and equal pay movement, the whatever the me too. It, there, there's just a groundswell of people saying, whether it's black lives matter or, or, or equal payday, it's, it's a groundswell of women saying, I am not going to take this anymore. And then corporate structures and organizations need to find a way to deal with it. And we're out in the streets and we're, you know, um, I, I, I distinctly remember someone saying to me, a man saying, what is this million women's march? Like who, who, what does that really do? And I thought, I don't, I don't know what it really does, but um, I think we're going to find out it's going to do something. And I, I was with him a little bit on the idea that enough with the protests, enough with the postings, you know, like what's really happening. And then when I saw that they were signing up women to vote and to run for office, learn how to run to office at the, um, that March, I realized, oh yeah, you know what's going to come out of this? Women are going to be in, you know, local legislatures all over the country. Like they're taking control and it did. I mean, more women voted, more women ran for office, more women understood their local government and started being advocates than ever before. That's what that march did. It was, and I feel it's like directly correlated. So um, we're reaping, everyone's, you know, the ADHD community, whoever it is, we're reaping the benefits of the women who are out there um, saying, I, I can't, um, you know, I, I can't tolerate living this way anymore. Yeah. So, I mean, I take my pumping example, like instead of just saying like, oh, these are the options that are available to me for pumping and those are too stressful and ridiculous. So I guess I'm just not going to pump and I guess I'm going to stop breastfeeding at three months. And then I guess I'm going to carry that guilt with me for the rest of my life. Every time my kid gets an ear infection or whatever. Uh, it's interesting, you know, that, like you said, I guess just that idea of like being able to recognize that what is, what is happening right now may feel like it's the norm, but it's not acceptable and like how do we even begin to recognize those situations when we are so bogged down in daily living yeah the the idea of having um like from like an, another another way to understand how people get information and how they understand what's normal and what's not um you know the the one thing i i dread writing about is celebrities 
right? Like I don't want to learn my normal from some celebrity. That doesn't make sense to me. But I recently wrote about Elon Musk on SNL and I don't agree with him on many, many, many fronts, but there was so much discussion about what is Asperger's? What is autism? What, why is he like this? What are all entrepreneurs like this? How does he, you know, manage to um, stay afloat and not, you know, just, you know, catch on fire, which he has (laughs) (laughs) go up in flames, you know, like his life is so not moderated. And, um, I realized, okay, so, and one of my friends who's on the advisory board for Rebel Talent said, so why are you doing this, Denise? Like, this man is not a role model. And I said, it's, I'm doing this exactly because we're having this discussion on LinkedIn and everyone can see it and everyone can see this topic. And if they want to, they can scroll back and find out who you are as an ADHD coach and who I am. And that's opening a discussion that is really, you know, wouldn't happen unless that person saw this link. Um, mm. And I'm not saying Elon Musk is a great guy. I'm saying he's a, he, he's, he lights a fire <laughs> and I'm going to, you know, there, where there's, where there's heat and friction, I, I'm going to hopefully get some traction and, and, and it will alert people that um, to the issues. So just to backtrack a little with Rebel Talent, tell me about the kind of inception of this and and who you work with. Do you work with employers or employees or both? So uh, right now I work with both. Um, the, the idea is let's meet in this middle space. Um, and so companies hire me to basically um, it sounds terrible. It sounds like a goldfish bowl, but it, it, it's, it's like a focus group. It's like, if you really want to know how, um, you know, to go uh, to work with people who are neurodiverse, you have to talk to them. And if you ask HR people or anybody, they'll say, I'm not sure I know anyone neurodiverse. I'm not sure I've interviewed anyone neurodiverse. And you're like, well, now you will, you know, and it could be, they, they're the people that are in the groups. So it's sort of equal number of HR leadership, whoever wants to be in it. Um, and then um, random people who have time to be very open and, and can use their, just their first name if they want to. They're not looking for a job. They're not interviewing. They're simply there to say, I represent the average person um, or I can tell you how I felt. Not No two people are alike, but you know, I think um, common questions come up and it's like, Oh, so noise really bothers you or, you know, like really basic things like the two days I stay home from work and I don't have to commute. I'm so profoundly, you know, productive, any of those things. um, And they don't have to be about stigma or I need mental health help and I'm having a crisis. The discussion is really about, hi, I'm this way. You're that way. What's the big deal? Like, let's become familiar with each other or we won't be able to have um, any context for when we're trying to hire or help someone as a manager. Um, And it's been really fun. Like it's just, it's, it's just, um, you know, I'm, I'm working on this book called the, you know, sort of like the big book of rebel wisdom. (laughs) And it all comes from people who have been in these conversations with me or who I've interviewed at Forbes. They've, they've said um, just, everyday things that make them um, 
that makes so much sense. And I, I heard it on your program as well. When, when someone would say, oh, I thought that was just me. You know, I thought I would only do that. And it's so validating to be able to both talk to people in leadership positions and not feel like you're on the, you know, like you're on the rocks, like it's not your job, it's on the rocks, right? And also to be able to talk to other people like you and just let these things out, right? And then you mm. realize, oh my gosh, that's not so, you know, that like, it's not such a big deal. I just, if you can name it, you can make it manageable, you know? Um, but I don't think anyone's really doing what I'm doing because it's very niche, it's very small and, um, and it, it takes a lot of time. So it's not necessarily going to be um, anti-bias at scale, <laughs> right? Like it's just, that's, that's, not, that's not where I'm going. But I do think it's um, in a company, let's say of 400, 500, uh, or a team of 100 or 50, um, it's, it's really, uh, it, it breaks open this, you know, new conversation. And even if nothing gets solved that day, um, people become human to each other. And that's, that's what's missing. Right now, if you're a label, I have ADHD, she has ADHD, should we interview or no? <laughs> you know, I don't want to be a label to people. Um, and, I, and I know other people who would say, I don't even want my label known. And that's okay too. But just saying how I work or how I work best or what I, what happens to me when I get feedback from you after a long day, you know, how I accept feedback, all of those things mm -hmm. um, have something to do with being neurodiverse. And frankly, other people who are not neurodiverse have them too. You know, um, it, there are people who freak out about getting feedback and there's, they're not diagnosed with anything. They're just them. That's just Joe. He hates feedback, you know, <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> um, so they become normalized, basically. Things just become um, discussable, <laughs> I'd say. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and that's what Rebel Talent does. It says, I'm going to, I'm taking the time to, because I've been a success or because I've really dug deep into this diagnosis myself and come to grips with it. I'm going to take the time to share with other people and rebel against the, the, the traditions of not talking or the traditions of my company. Well, and I feel like it makes so much sense. It's almost like the matrix. Once you actually see it, you know, like it's like, it makes so much sense to, to, lean into the strengths of your individual employees to get the best out of them right. as opposed to um, making sure that everybody is uniform. And yet, like I think in the U.S. especially, like putting resources into the health and happiness of your employees is frowned upon. It's like it's almost like a sign of weakness. Um, whereas like really at the end of the day, like that's the best investment you can make in your company is making sure that you've got like optimal workspace or, opt you know, you know, if you nine to five is not your jam, like how do we, you know, how do we figure out how to best right, right. Uh, lean into your strengths? And, and so when you talk about it that way, it's like, it feels like common sense. And yet it really just, the culture in this country is the exact opposite. I think it's why so many people with ADHD end up becoming entrepreneurs because they just couldn't take it. And they had too many 
outbursts where they were just like expected to do one thing and just couldn't perform. Right. Or didn't ask for help. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's like, oh, if I'm an entrepreneur, nobody will see the fact that I cannot handle QuickBooks. You know, like that's just nobody's going to ask me, do I have that skill? Um, you know, I would have these massive charts, these donor charts when I was working for one nonprofit and someone would say, so just scroll, just keep scrolling. And I'd be like, ah, I can't see. Like, I don't know why. It's like, stop, just stop scrolling. Like, I don't understand where you are in this file anymore, you know? And like, they're like, what is wrong with you? And, you know, I just said, I, I don't know. I just can't see it. I can't visualize what you're talking about. These different groups and this, the different totals at the bottom when I can't see the totals at the bottom and I don't know what, how much the campaign made. And I, you know, it was like, it just... It drove people insane. The, the people who who were, um, you know, working on all the analytics, just I'm sure were not quite excited about working with me. And um, and I the same with them. But if we had talked about it, and I had said, um, I know this thing is a 20 page report, but if you printed it out with me and we had a discussion, um, this would go so much faster. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like really honestly like I that's all I need is a printer and yeah. um and and I think that that's why some people fail they can't um manage their responsibilities right because they can't um they take get sucked up in one activity that they're really bad at instead of acting asking for help um I mean I used to do that with expense reports as a journalist I, I would spend all weekend being like, oh, where'd that thing go? That tape, that receipt. And like, you know, like every single thing I did was like, um, they had to deal with money. I did outside of work because I was just like, okay, then you add this to that, you know, like it was, it was a nightmare. And if I had taken my real work time to do that, I would have been fired immediately. I know. So asking for help is so hard for us. And I think, you know, I feel like our default in so many situations is if this isn't working, I'm the failure. You know, like we immediately pile on on ourselves. We never, our, our default, our, our knee-jerk reaction is never, this situation is not ideal. How can we solve it? It's like, oh, I'm terrible. I'm, you know, I'm the failure. Uh, I can't perform, whatever it is, you know. And, and I'm like, how do you even begin to work on that impulse that that knee-jerk reaction after a lifetime of feeling like you you know that you're the one who's wrong yet under years under years of of practicing life that way mm -hmm. yeah. um, that's the great thing I think about my son's generation in their 20s they they're like my son's learning um differences and his tutoring were embedded in his school there was no, oh, the special kid goes over there, you know, <laughs> um, and therefore, and that happened to a lot, that happens to a lot of kids where um, it's, it's a known factor that, that the kids learn differently. And if you're in a, in a decent school system, then um, you speak out, you learn to speak out. And as a kid, you learn to advocate for yourself. Like I need to sit near the window on the bus to the game because I'll barf on you if I don't, you know, like it's not huge accommodations. <laughs> it's just open the window or seat me away from the pencil sharpener. Or um, can we not like have study hall outside the gym because it echoes so much. Those are all not um, expensive accommodations. And once you as, as 
as my kid has, once you're used to speaking up for yourself, you don't really care. Like if a professor doesn't understand, you're like, oh, how can I help you understand? Because at this point, I know what I need. And maybe you just don't know, you don't get it, <laughs> you know? Um, and I love seeing that. I love seeing them talk about it. I know. it's, And that I am grateful for that in terms of how I am now able to recognize the importance of self-advocacy and be and able to turn around and help my kids with that. Because you're right, it's so important. Like, um, you know, my son, who is not yet diagnosed because I'm so recently diagnosed, we haven't even gotten there yet because of the pandemic. And, and so, so much of his school year was at home learning and remote learning and like, yeah, but, you know, crazy, right? it, it's, it was crazy, but I'm also, like I said, I'm very grateful because I've been a, sort of by his side this whole time. So I've been able to see so many of this idiosyncrasies that I've been able to link and say, okay, like, what are the structures that we need to help with that? And, you know, I joke about the fact that like, we all swear, you know, we have no filter. We swear we have, there's no, there's no off limit words in my house, except for the word lazy. We call that the L word. Oh, You're not allowed to call yourself that. lazy. Right. Because he will do that, you know, where I'm like, why didn't you do this thing? And he's like, I don't know. I'm lazy. And I'm like, You're not lazy. You just spent six hours in Minecraft. You are the opposite of lazy. <laughs> you know, right, right. but I'm like, You are not allowed to use that word. You have to figure out, okay, maybe you didn't do the thing, but there's always a reason why you didn't do the thing. Usually it's because it's boring and it's terrible and you need to figure out a way to motivate yourself right but see the thing that's so great just to go back to that is you seeing him doing these things right you're like if you see a pattern long enough um I mean and some of them can reflect on you or refle reflect on them I mean I can tell some really funny stories about terrible patterns I you know had um but just talking about those patterns or being having the luxury of seeing that and understanding it because you are who you are, that's exactly what people in business do not have. And that's why tying the thing together is so much uh, of, you know, just sort of unbundling, you know, all these fraught feelings. Um, it's not about do, do you know how to do QuickBooks? It's like, could we have someone help you teach you QuickBooks or use the new razor's edge system or whatever it is, um, you know, using printed out materials. Like I would have been much better off and said, I, I just went bananas, like trying to understand what people in the, in other departments were talking about when they talk about finances. <laughs> right. Or that it's not a reflection of your intelligence. If you can't figure out QuickBooks right. on your own, you know, like, I think we also have this sense of like, if we need help, it's somehow a reflection of our incompetence or our, or our lack of intellect. Whereas like asking for help is like, you know, that's one thing I think we really could, could give to our children is just like normalizing the need for help and like that you shouldn't be, you shouldn't be at your wits end before you even ask right. for help. Exactly. Exactly. Like th they are incompetences. I, I can't do, um, you know, a lot of Photoshop. Like, I, I'm sorry, I haven't learned that. It's an, I am not competent at Photoshop, but I know someone who is. So if I give it to that person can, you know, I do, I mean, as a kid, always, always, I had a barter system of activities, you know, like I'm really bad. Like, like someone would tell me to rake the leaves and like, I'd rake them like, and they'd all, or mow the lawn or whatever, or sh shovel actually was another one. Shovel, and I'd shovel not in a straight line, you know, and I'd be like, here's the deal. I'm going to make 
all the hot cocos and all this stuff and do all this stuff, right? Like, and, and put all the wet clothes in the dryer if you do the shuffling. Cause I can't have my dad come out and look at this like bizarro, you know, maze that I made <laughs> on the driveway, right? Like, it was always like a, this and that. You do this, I'll do that. Um, you know, it, even to the point of um, if you sing louder, then the teacher won't tell me to stop singing because I have such a bad voice. Like, you know, there's numerous ways you can think about it. And it's, it's, um, for me, so bartering skills is a way of life. You know, I'll help you organize things while I'm hyper-focused, you know, and, and you can paint the walls. <laughs> I can't paint, you know, I'll give up after 20 minutes. I'm like, this is so boring. And I'll, I'll live with a half painted wall. Um, you know, so, and I, and I know that that's not a competency of mine. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's like, yeah. I literally just moved in. Someone said, who's painting? And I'm like, it's not me. It's not me. <laughs> it's just too much. It's too creepy. Uh, so I, said, I ordered this little can of chalk paint and I said, I actually am just painting the windowsills because they're so gross. And, and um, a friend of mine said, that is a great job for you. <laughs> like, <sighs> Like here I am, like these, just these little parts in this little can of this little brush, and um, and and it was so satisfying, and um, but you know, I, again back to like, what are you not competent at? What drives you mad? My son used to come home from school at three o'clock, and he would always find a ride home because I'd forget him, right? Like <laughs> he'd just be like 14 and I'd be like, oh yeah, oh, sorry. And when he called, if he needed a ride, I'd be like, why do you need a ride? And like, I'd be bananas, you know? And then if he came in the door and um, had gotten a ride, I'd be like, can you please be quiet? And he's like, I just got home from school. And I'm like, but I was just starting to focus. <laughs> and, like, and, and finally I was like, this is not your fault. I am yeah. so sorry, honey. Like, I, I don't, I'm going to have to figure this out. But like, I'm so sorry for yelling at you at three o'clock every day. <laughs> yeah, I definitely had that at the beginning of the pandemic where it was like, you need to eat again? Why? I just fed you. Right, right. <laughs> And you're right. And I don't think I was very sensitive to the fact that for me, it was sort of, I was joking about the absurdity of the fact that I even thought that, but I'm not sure that nuance comes across to a nine-year-old who's hungry, who's like, I'm sorry, I'm taking up space. Like, I really feel like I need to apologize for those things. When I would work on events, I would, I would come home. My office was very near our home and I would I would run to the grocery store and get like a rotisserie chicken, some potatoes, some salad and some ice cream. And I'd say everything. And I tell Toby, everything is out for dinner. And one day he called me and he goes, there's a potato on the counter. <laughs> and I was like, what? No, I, I'm sorry. Like, and I'm busy, like checking in, like high, high giving donors. And I'm like, potato, like, and, and I was like, no, 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 there's ice cream, there's salad, you just chop it up and there's this dressing that you like. And then the rotisserie chicken, just take it out of the fridge and let it get to room temperature. And he was like, right, but right now there's just a potato. <sighs> and I was like, that's so you can microwave it. Like, just what is the problem, you know? And um, yeah, I was like, food, What? what is it? Like, I just expected him to be a gourmet chef at, at, at 14 or 15 and... Uh, put all the pieces together. Now he jokes that I don't cook, I assemble food. 
I remember getting angry with my mom because I, I thought that she had taught both of my brothers to cook and not taught me. And I was like, why did you go out of your way to not teach me how to cook? I'm like, I'm totally incompetent adult now. And like, I feel like, and she was like, I didn't teach anyone to cook. They just sort of learned through helping me and, and putting things together. And I, but like, I felt like I needed to be explicitly told how to do sort of adulting things. And I was very, angry. I felt very betrayed that she hadn't like sat me down and told me how to do all of these things. Right. Yeah. And, and there's, I remember as a kid feeling, I, I never understood when people said I had no words for it or I didn't, couldn't say it. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, I have so many words, like I have things to spare. Just take these freaking words. Right. Like, I mean, I was like, that never happened to me. But when I looked back, I realized whatever I was saying, I didn't have the right words to explain to my parents who are both therapists and very kind people, what was going on on with me, like how really upsetting certain things were. And um, they, you know, like the car sickness was just a classic one where um, we would take these trips and go on these crazy windy roads. And we, my mom would say, we're at the top of the mountain at the road to Hana or whatever, like in, in Hawaii. And I'd be like, <laughs> and um, she's like, we're gonna do this and this and this. And I'd be like, I'll just be sitting here. And she, she would be so disappointed. You know, she loves traveling. And I, I, was, I said, I don't even know how to explain how crappy I feel. And then I was, all I could think about was we have to go back down. <laughs> like we got up here. I'm so focused on how to get down. And, um, and she, you know, didn't say like get some food or she didn't think about any of the things that might have helped me. Um, because I couldn't really say, um, we, we would stumble upon them. Like one day she gave me a diet Coke or tab as it was back then. And, um, and I sucked it down with some, um, Benadryl. And I was like, I think I feel okay now. Like, I mean, not, uh, not Benadryl, Dramamine. And I was like, I took a half a Dramamine and like two cans of soda. And I was like, I can walk now like <laughs> in a straight line. And, um, and I would feel crappy the next day and the next night, even if it was bad enough, if my inner ear balance had gotten bad enough. Um, and that they just, I, I could not explain why, mm -hmm. you know, like I, I, you're not, I wasn't in the car. We were like, I would stop swimming. Cause it would be like, eh, I don't want to do that. You know, like certain, like, like even the swimming pool would seem like very rocky waters to me. <laughs> <laughs> like how do you say that to your friends it's like wow it's like a big boat came through here <laughs> and it was just your dad diving in you know mm -hmm. um so yeah it, it it it's um it I think for women of our age who who get diagnosed all of a sudden the pieces start to come together and you say oh, this is why this, and this is this, and this is why I always fought with this person. That's why I always got along with this person. Um, and it's really gratifying to know who you, like why you are, how you are. It doesn't change who you are. It's just why, why was I like that? Yes. And there's yeah. nothing wrong with me. I think that's, you know, I've say, I feel like I say this all the time, which is like, the diagnosis is half the treatment, you know, just having that answer. And like you said, putting all of these seemingly random struggles in our life sort of all come back to this one very neat 
package. I, I don't think you can say, oh, I got a diagnosis and I feel so much better because it goes in phases. I mean, I think you get really excited about being on medication, telling everybody about this, who needs to know. And then you can get really depressed when you, like, I've gotten really depressed when things don't come together. Right. And I thought, oh, that was supposed to be the answer. Yeah. That's why I say half the treatment. Cause I do yeah. feel, I feel like you yeah. still have to deal with the executive dysfunction elements and a lot of that stuff that's not magically going away, but you know, you still sort of have to work with who you are and, but at least like, I feel like you have a, you have a fighting chance to, to lean into those strengths and to come from a place of there's nothing wrong with me. How can I advocate or how can I ask for help or all of these things that we had such a difficult time dealing with for so long? Because we, like you said, we had no words. We didn't know what was happening. You know, it's so difficult to really put your finger on what is going on. We're just kind of floating through holding it all together. Yeah, and and I, if you're like me and anyone who's listening to this, um, whether you have ADHD or not, if you listen to enough of these discussions or if you have had ADHD a diagnosis for long enough, you can spot someone anywhere who's having the same issue. You're like, oh, in Starbucks, like that guy, oh man, he's freaking out, you know, or in the library, whatever it is. Um, or on an airplane, like any space where you're with someone for a decent amount of time, right? Um, you become very attuned to what other people, um, who else in the room has these issues also, and or is struggling. I always feel responsible for people like, you know what you should just do is like, take my seat and sit over here and then your baby will be fine and we'll watch her while you get your diet, whatever, and, and your Starbucks and um, eat that muffin and maybe you should have some protein with it. <laughs> I feel so responsible for other people, but the, 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 that awareness is, um, is, it can be very helpful to other people. And I, I, I find it very rewarding when I can't help myself to at least help other people. Right. Yeah. And uh, yeah. And I, and that's why I think so many of us turn to advocacy for other people, which is just like, if, if one person, if I can help one person to not struggle the way that I felt like I was struggling, it will have all been worth it, you know? I want to take a minute to let you know about the new women and ADHD online community. One thing I hear time and time again from listeners of this podcast is wow, these interviews make me feel so much less alone. And I totally agree. I believe finding our people and sharing our lived experiences is such an integral part of successfully managing our ADHD. So I've put together this online community for listeners of the podcast where we can come together in a safe, intimate environment and make friends and obsessively ponder our neurodivergent brains with other brilliant like-minded women. And we never have to apologize for simply being ourselves. With your membership, you also have access to all sorts of exclusive content like early access to this podcast, written transcripts of the episodes, and a free copy of my audiobook, Worth It, A Journey to Food and Body Freedom. You also have the option to upgrade at any time in order to participate in regular body doubling sessions and live member hangouts on Zoom with me and other members where we discuss life with our ADHD brains. So head over to womenandadhd.com to join us or find the link in the show notes. All right. I hope to see you there soon. Now, when you wrote Elephant in the Playgr Playroom, that was in 2007, 
right? So that, were you diagnosed then? Yeah. Okay, interesting. So I was spending most of my time trying to figure out my kids' schooling. Um, and I, I often, this is, is going to sound terrible, but I often felt like I was more of an expert than the expert who was helping my son. And yeah. I think to myself, you're doing a great job, but he only gets 10 minutes with you. What do you think this is going to do? You know, mm-hmm. like, could we try this at home and not have OT at school? Like, it, you know, things like that, where the person was perfectly competent, but they weren't seeing the larger picture. And um, I began to ask other parents, well, what do you do when the OT room moves and they only basically get 10 minutes of OT instead of their 25? And and what do you do when you go to your mother-in-law's when like, like your kid is just like in a, I'm only going to eat beige food moment, you know? Um, or doesn't want to hug anyone. And um, how does that affect your marriage? Like, I just, I was relentless. I would just ask people quietly questions. And if they didn't answer, they didn't answer. But what I found was that other parents also felt like experts. They they also wanted to tell their stories. And, um, and they really had uh, a viewpoint that's that's so different than a medical diagnosis. It's um, it's a it's a lifestyle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like like they, people. Um, and then some people said to me, "Well, you got forty-one people to write, and you know they spilled out their stories. You took advantage of them." And I said, "Would you like me to show you the letters that every single person wrote saying this was so therapeutic?" <laughs> and um, to this day, if, if if I have someone I know who's wants to tell me part of their story, but they don't want to tell me the rest. I say, just write a letter to yourself. Like, do, write it to yourself. It's so therapeutic, you know, um, what you want other people to know. Mm-hmm. Um, because getting it out on paper and even even if you're sitting alone in bed at night, you share the story, you know, the next day with your husband or whoever, um, a neighbor who has the same issues, all of a sudden it creates this, this was before the web, you know, this was like before I, I sent paper letters out to people, you know, and my, I remember sitting at the dining room table, like, you know, mailing them with my babysitter. And um, the, the, there's now so many outlets for community, but there's something different about, uh, at that time, there was a lot about, seeing 41 different types of situations in one book. It wasn't a memoir. It was all these little bits and pieces of information. Um, and that's, that's how I ended up writing the book because I, I, I just realized I was having all these really awful issues that didn't seem like I would talk to the um, medication manager or the pharmacology guy about them for my son. You know, I was Mm -hmm. like, he doesn't really like getting hugs from his grandmother. And, you know, like, who do you ask that question? What do you do? Yeah. You know, and it's interesting too. Like, I feel like there is so much therapy in, like you've said earlier, like just knowing that you're not alone, you know, like that is also such a huge, um, 
step toward healing, you know, that, and, and that's been a realization for me through this podcast as well. Like just, you know, the answer is not in the next self-help book. That's going to tell you how to do X, Y, Z in order to live a better life. Like the answer is finding your community and finding, feeling understood and feeling less isolated and feeling like, you know, I think maybe we're right. Like I think maybe we're, we might have more access to communicate with each other through the internet than we than we did a generation ago, but we're not accessing the full people. We're accessing like very limited ideas of who people are, which is probably contributing to an overwhelming sense of isolation, especially when you think of mental health isolation. And so, yeah, I think being able to kind of parse out um, this experience in conversation has been so um, profoundly life-changing for me. And now I'm like, and then other people get to listen to it and it's profoundly life-changing for them too, just to hear themselves in these stories. I'm like, that is where the healing is, right? When you contacted me, I was so grateful. I was like, wow. And then I went on this walk. Sometime, for some reason, when I walk, I like to listen to podcasts Same. and remember them much more than I do. So I can remember these moments like where, you know, an entrepreneur said, you know, her revenue streams and this whole thing. And like, and I'm like, geez, anyone else would think you were nuts, but I totally get this, you know? <laughs> and um, like, there were just certain ones that really stuck with me. And um, I kept thinking, this is great because even if you only listen to one a week or whatever it was that, I mean, I'm just thankful that you're bringing this into the world. Like, it's just, it's just like my book, but it's, you know, it's now <laughs> and it's a little more flexible than a big hardcover book. Um, <laughs> right. And I, and I think women, there's more women to talk to. So who um, need this outlet? So, Anyway, I just want to say thank you for doing this. And well, thank you. I love what you are putting out into the world and especially the work with um, changing the workplace and how and how we can view neurodivergence in in the workplace, I think is so important. And yeah, this is this like the way I write for Forbes, people will read the story and they they're like, what's different about this? And I say, it's because I'm one of you. <sighs> Like, I don't, I don't write about, I don't write like as if I'm a press release or I'm a corporate wonk or I run the numbers and I worry about ROI. I talk about all those things, but I talk about them on a very human level. And um, I think a lot of people are doing that now, but in, for a Forbes reader, when you think about it, nobody in business was talking about neurodiversity in 2018 really regularly. Um, maybe mental health, maybe substance use, maybe opioids, all of those things. Um, but those were also sort of put to the back. Like, you know, you deal with those, um, you know, we want you, you to know that we want things to be confidential. So it was never an outside, you know, an out in the open discussion because a lot of them have to, those conversations have to be confidential. Right. Mm -hmm. But, um, but, you know, knowing where, um, you know, where to, where to easily park your car is not a confidential conversation. <laughs> you know, like I'm really bad at driving, really bad at parking. Could someone, you know, tell me like, what are the spots that are the best? Like, how do you, how have you been doing this? And, um, you know, that's not a confidential conversation. And, and I'll use an anecdote like that in a piece and people will totally get it um, because they, they see how every day it is, you know, Oh yeah. It's, it's, it's business, but it's every day. 
I think one of the biggest single reliefs I've ever felt since my diagnosis was was when I read that brushing your teeth was like an issue. And I just was like, you're kidding because it's so private and it's such like, you know, a personal shame and fault. And the fact that like, even if we can't openly discuss it about ourselves, if we can discuss it in the generic, that it's an issue for some of us. Like, I just was like, oh my God. Yes. Like that feeling. Spooky thing. It's like, yeah. Wait. I don't well, it makes perfect sense if you think about it. It's really boring. There's no immediate reward. There's no immediate, um, you know, it's, 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 you understand in very obtuse, you know, abstract ways and why you should do it. But it's really like a terrible thing to have to do on, on a regular basis. Like it, it makes sense to me when you really like break it down, why it's so difficult for us. But it's That's also like. Then. When you talked about that with somebody else, I, that was one of those things that where would that ever come up, you know? Right. Yeah. But here, it was like, yes, I totally get it. Um, I, I have things like, I guess my kids or my friends notice the most, but they'll say like, oh God. I, I'd be like, why do I always get stuck in a line next to someone who stands so close to you? And they're like, you don't, Denise. You just don't like people standing in line like that way. Like, you know, I'd be like, it always happens to me. Maybe it's because I'm short. Maybe it's like, and they're like, no, you know, that's one of those things where I literally just get so agitated when people are so close to me, like nipping at my heels with their cart back in the days pre-pandemic, right? Like standing six feet apart, it's just a brilliant thing for me. <laughs> yes, I agree. I really hope we keep that. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, one thing that's so wonderful about the neurodivergent community is how open and accepting most people are. And like the weirder, the better, in my opinion, right? Like all of these things that you've had secret shame about for so long, it's like, bring it on. We're all weird. Right. You know? And the hacks too. Like you're, yeah. you think, oh, that is such a good idea. You know, yeah. whatever it was. I mean, I grew up with the, what I call like the ultimate ADHD hacker, my dad, um, and, and we had a name for it. It was called the Brody Method. And uh, my dad would do, has ADHD, has learning disabilities, and he was diagnosed with learning disabilities at a young age, but um, he's 80. But he, he spent a lot of time in therapy, not really with a tutor. And um, I don't know really how he did it. He's a wonder. Um, but he's, you know, he became a, a psychiatrist because of... Um, all the therapy he had and all the struggles he had, but, but he also became shameless about making things the way he needed them, the Brody method. So at the, um, where the telephone was, there would be these white pads and then there'd be on the back would be a big pen that was with a string attached to it. So you never had to look for a pen when someone called to write down their name. Like that's just a classic. Right. Um, and I, I'm trying to think of, of um, oh, like, you know, if somebody, if, if you're, oh, this is a great one. When there's too many people in the house and too many glasses and all the glasses are getting mixed up and, and like, why run the dishwasher 75 times? My dad puts different color rubber bands on the glasses so that your coffee cup is yours. Like that's yours for the day. You have red. I mean, there's endless uses for rubber bands, right? Um, and um, he would like, you know, uh, he's the one who taught me that um, when you go to a hotel and like there's some weird squeaky noises, like just bring WD-40. He had this little thing, WD-40. <laughs> like, and they'd be like, who else does that, you know? Oh my God, I love it. So, um, I mean, I, you know, 
th- those uh, those hacks that you get along with the toothbrushing, with the, the confessions, I, I've learned how to live my life a lot better. Yeah. Um, well, and, and and it really flips the script when you realize, like, we're not lazy. We're actually really hard workers. Look at all of these ways in which we have, like, gone the extra mile to make our life less terrible <laughs> or, like, to manage with some of these issues. Yeah. Well, someone said to me, like, what are you – I was I was dating someone and um, I, I would make the bed while I was in it. And they're like, what are you doing? And I'm like, it's just so easy this way. And they're like, that is really weird. And I'm like, no, but like, I don't spatially know how much is on the other side of the sheets are on this side and the comforter and this. And like, that's one of those things someone else taught me. And I was like, this, I love this. This is great. Um, I love it too. Yeah. I have to bring my pillow with me everywhere I go. Cause I can't sleep on any other pillow, but my own. And like, it's forever a, a source of um, conflict with my sister-in-law because she takes personal offense that I don't use her pillows. And I'm just like, uh, I'm sorry. A, a good night's sleep is more important to me than, than your affection. Well, it took 10 years for, I think, all of us in our family to say to my mother, your sheets are crunchy. They're like so, I don't know what it is. They're crunchy. I know exactly what you're talking about. I, yeah. I, you know, so we would take, um, I always, if I don't have a pillow, whatever, I take a t-shirt like a cotton t-shirt and I put it over the pillow and like just Good a t-shirt from the gap you know short sleeve t-shirt and then it fits perfectly over the pillow and then it's mine I don't have to crunch around like that uh when I roll around it <laughs> no I love I, it yeah it's it's um it the other thing that I wanted to mention was that um a lot of the, a lot of my points of difference, which I think other people, I would love to see, and I know they will and do privately, is that you have to have a sense of humor. You know, you really have to laugh, and you have to be able to laugh not only with each other about ADHD jokes, but be able to laugh when someone doesn't understand you. And that's become a big thing for me. Just looking at the other person like, wow, you're a nose picker. You know, I, I find that to be a really strange habit. And um, it's, it's very upsetting. Are you neurodiverse? You know, <laughs> you have neurodiverse nose picking issues. Like, you know, everybody has their quirks. Like, I don't want to see yeah. Bob pick his nose for the entire meeting. Maybe that's, maybe that's a, a normal trait. It's just terrible. Get rid of that normal trait. <laughs> right. Yeah. I feel like it's the difference between somebody telling you something really like vulnerable and personal and, and the res- somebody who's neurotypical might respond like, I'm sorry. Right. And a neurodiverse person would be like, that's fascinating. How did that happen? Why? What's going on? <laughs> right. Ask me how that came about. Ask right. Me that, you know, um, but I, I literally would also put um, my hand over the side of my face if someone was doing something so annoying in a meeting. It was like, I became like a horse. Like I, I saw a horse in, in Central Park once, you know, with those things, those blinders. Yeah. And I was like, that's it. That's what I need. I need to be boxed like this. So I would just, and people were like, are you okay? And I'm like, yeah, yeah. I'm just like, this is how I think. <laughs> Uh, I feel like I could talk your face off for hours. So thank you so much for joining me. And um, it's been such a lovely conversation. How can people find you online? Uh, so the Rebel Talent site, um, the best thing to do there is to um, sign up. Um, there's like a couple places where it says sign up, get news, advice, insider stuff. And I, I don't send out a lot of stuff because of 
I have ADHD. Like I don't get it all the time. So, you know, like I'm not going to overflow your inbox. And um, the the site for Rebel Talent is elephants with an S dash everywhere.com. Um, if you don't do it correctly and you put a period, you'll come up with some really cool group singing some rock band that I don't know. And I, I think they're very lovely. Um, but uh, you can also find me at Talent Rebel on Instagram and on Twitter. I'm at D Brody. Um, so you can find all of my Forbes pieces if you just literally put in my name, B-R-O-D-E-Y, comma, Forbes. Um, but I think you have the link to, like, the the, the, the author page. Um, yeah, I'll put all of these links in the show notes so people don't end up at a, accidentally end up at a, a band website. <laughs> so, yeah, you can go to the show notes. There you have it. Thank you for listening. And I really hope you enjoyed this episode of the Women and ADHD podcast. Also, as you know, we ADHDers crave feedback, and I would really appreciate hearing from you, the listener. Please take a moment to leave me a review over on my website, womenandadhd.com, or on Apple Podcasts, or Audible, or whatever other platform you're using. And if that feels like too much, and I get it, then just take a few seconds to give me a five-star rating. Boom, done. Or share this episode on your own social media to help reach more women who maybe have yet to discover and lean into this neurodivergent superpower, and they may be struggling and they don't even know why. Make sure to tag me on Instagram or Twitter. I'm at women and ADHD. If you are a woman who was diagnosed with ADHD in adulthood and you'd like to be interviewed as a guest on this podcast, please reach out to me. My email is womenandadhdpodcast at gmail.com. If you'd like to know more about me, head over to worthitwithkatie.com. That's where I help other women with ADHD break free from the yo-yo dieting and binge eating cycle for good. I'll see you next week when I interview another amazing woman who has recently discovered that she is not lazy or crazy, but she has ADHD. And now she's on the path to understanding that neurodivergence and finally using it to her advantage. Take care till then.